If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I have skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. This week we are all thankful that we live nowhere near the ocean, but are ready to discuss blockbusters, editing, scores, and adaptations this week. As we talk Jaws on Zach on film. What's going on this week, Zach? Oh, not much. Just uh, living the high life and watching movies. Yeah, what movie did you watch this week? Uh, This week I watched Jaws. Jaws. Tell me about it. (laughs) Tell me about it, please. Uh, Jaws is is a movie about a giant man-eating great white shark. Okay. That is terrorizing a town. Uh-huh. And not just the, a town, but an entire well, island. Well, an entire island. Okay. And uh the mayor of said town with name I can't remember. Amity. Amity. Amity Island. This this is an important lesson. Don't ever live any place named Amity. Yep. If movies teach you nothing else, don't ever live any place named Amity. Yep. But essentially, shark eating people. People want shark dead. Uh, men go on boat, kill shark. Mm. Mm. The end. <laughs> next week. A chalkboard is scratched. <laughs> Citizen Kane. Wagon. Rosebud. Yes. Credits. Guy misses sled. <laughs> <laughs> Newspaper headline. So, you know... Um, Spinning. <laughs> There is a lot to be said about the story of Jaws, right? First of all, it was uh, adapted oh. from the Peter Benchley uh, novel, Jaws, right. same same thing. Right. Peter Benchley went and did a whole bunch of uh, crazy-ass books, yeah. kind of in that same thing. Sea vein. monster books? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there was another one that was like a giant tentacle monster yeah, coming like from squid. below. Yeah. I forget what that was called, Fathom or something. I, I think that was The Beast, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, The Beast, that's yeah. right. Tentacle, if he kept in the same vein of Jaws, yeah. probably. Um. Sucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Calamari. There are a lot of things that can be interpreted in this movie as well, and a lot of people have interpreted this uh, in a number of different ways. One interpretation of this is that, and we were just kind of somewhat giggling about it earlier, is that this is a movie about the put-down of women and um, how sex and violence are exactly the same thing, and that's all this movie is about. Mm-hmm. Rodrigo agree or not agree? Why why do we giggle so much about it's, this? It's always difficult to just out and out disagree with a read. I mean that's that's the thing with reading into oh, right. a movie. And that's right. Is you are always that is always a possibility. And right. if you can if you can argue it and you can defend it, then more power to you. Um I think that sometimes when I think it's it's clear 
that the director and writer of this movie wanted to make a movie about a man-eating shark. So -hmm. you can attribute a lot of things to it, but it's going to be difficult to argue because the theme, yes, because the themes are tend to be this thing is scary. The only, I, I think the, well, not the only, but the strongest theme here is your very primal man against nature. Right, mm-hmm. right. Um, just to pull this with, quote with just a With just a little tinge of corporate greed. Right, and I'll come back to the corporate greed in a moment. Uh, this is the exact quote. In Jaws, the shark reflects a disguised hatred of women and the preoccupation of our society with sadistic sexuality, a view of business as predatory and irresponsible in human terms, and a fear of retribution for the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. Now, maybe there's something in the Binchley novel that says that uh, Jaws came from, you know, one of the atolls where they performed uh, bombing tests right. and it grew to 25 I like, feet I like how you length. just called them Jaws. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Jaws is his name. Um, Bruce is what Bruce. they named the shark during the production. His name is Jaws. His name is Jaws. <laughs> name is Jaws. <laughs> I had an idea for a screenplay where the guys are on the boat. And they look around, and there's an even bigger Jaws, and they mm-hmm. have to team up with Jaws to get bigger <laughs> yes. Jaws. I call you know, it bigger Jaws. <laughs> you can uh, certainly, if this is this person's opinion, you know, that's great. I don't think I agree with it, but that's fine. And we can have a civil discourse about that. But to say that someone's opinion is just wrong and yours is right, and there is no other, there's no other area to discuss, I think that's where people get a little, little misguided. Yeah, especially yes. when you're, especially when you're discussing art, it's, right. it's very especially difficult. with art. Yeah, especially with art. So, um, Zach, let me ask you about the um, view of business as predatory and irresponsible yeah. in human terms, which is what I did get out of the yeah, movie. I, I totally would say that you watch it. Because here you have a uh, inexperienced or a newish um, chief of police mm-hmm. coming from New York to live out on this island, never lived in this area before, hates the water, and he's trying to deal, and this is his first summer season, and he's trying to deal with something that potentially could kill a lot of people. Right. And the city is only worried about one thing. We got mm-hmm. to bring in the tourists, tourists or money. we're all going to be on welfare come wintertime. Mm-hmm. And I think um, when you look, especially like the mayor character, you see him essentially putting a complete disregard for human life and trying mm-hmm. to save his butt and the town's butt through all this. And it really comes off really bad as uh we don't really care about the people who actually live here we just want these other people to come in mm-hmm. and, and paint this perfect picture of amity right and it's it's so funny i mean when you're talking about that the mayor doesn't care about anybody only the bottom line there's that one scene where he goes up to one of the town town's founders or whatever you call mm-hmm. the people from and it's like go get in the water yeah and you see the guy kind of just going Okay, and then everybody just kind of holds their hands, the wife, yeah. the grand, we're assuming grandkids, yeah. right. as they all just kind of walk into the water very reluctantly. This is everyone, their big goodbye, yeah. right? And then, of course, all hell breaks playing. loose. And they it, get eaten by bigger jaws. Interesting. Uh, I was looking at some of the adaptation differences, mm-hmm. and the mayor character in the novel is actually being uh, pressured to keep the island, the beaches open mm-hmm. from the mob. Because he ends up owing them money, or they have some weird agreement, and that the mob is actually okay. subverting into like the real estate business. And so, if the businesses start failing, the real estate's going to go down, and then the mob's actually going to start calling in all these debts the mayor owes them. But if they don't, and everything's fine, then they're all cool. 
and so I think, I mean, I think there's a, there's a lot of actual character yeah. uh, building in the novel that is stripped away, and they and they talk about uh, Spielberg and the writers talk about intentionally stripping that away, so it's mm-hmm. just a blockbuster actiony right. movie and not delving into uh, large the, the, character the mayor's pieces. motivations right and, and then, secondary characters motivations right and and then there's also like a love triangle mm-hmm. that happens between uh, Hooper and Brody and his wife in the novel that they oh, strip really? out to yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. which is probably for the best right um but it, I mean so I think you could have done jaws it seems like i haven't read the novel but from what i've heard people talking about it that you could have made this movie or you could have made a completely character driven movie with a backdrop of this of, of a of shark, a shark eating everyone yeah but all these character stuff happening well which do you like better i mean would you like to see something that is let's examine these characters and their nitty-gritty with the shark as kind of the backdrop or would you rather see the shark as the forefront with these characters as rodrigo said earlier this uh, idea of man versus nature yeah i think it's hard to say which one would i rather see mm. i would like to see the character driven one with the shark in the background just to see how that worked but to say one might be better than the other would be hard without actually seeing said second movie sure it's by the skin of our teeth yeah do you think that um, the characters of Hooper and Brody and um, Quint represent anything? Curmudgeon-y old guys on a boat? Well, no, that's all I got. Okay, so here you have Quint, who is earthy and down there and man stuff. Yeah. And uh, really the base level of of a persona, right? I mean, he's just about, he makes sexual innuendos, he sings body songs, he drinks, he gets liquored up, mm-hmm. uh, right. he likes the blood and guts, he... Hunts sharks for a living. Hunts right, sharks, right. sharks for a living. He's then you have working class, manly man. Yeah, he's, he represents this working class man. Mm-hmm. Then you have Hooper, the uh, Richard Dreyfus character, mm-hmm. who is intellectual and approaches things from a very scientific uh, standpoint. And he and Quint butt heads nonstop with one another. And then you have Brody, who is afraid of everything, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't want to go shark hunting. He doesn't want to be on the boat. He doesn't like the water. Um, but he's in charge. But he's in charge. And he's trying to corral and wrangle all of these characters in a situation where he can't win. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's given this impossible situation. He thinks they've caught the shark because he doesn't know any better. Mm-hmm. And he's celebrating. And then the uh, mother of the dead child comes up and smacks him across the face and says, my son's dead and this is your fault yeah. because you knew that a shark attack had come. And then you get to the point where he is relegated to the position of chumming the water while the other mm-hmm. two are doing their thing. So it's a real interesting dynamic that we have between those three characters in particular in their relation to the bigger story and what's going on in this story as we talk about man versus beast, right? Mm-hmm. And each one of them occupies a, a different level of man in that in that chain. 
man's inhumanity to man. And the different in a way, they're of, that Freudian trilogy of yes. id, ego, and superego. Exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. And, and uh, I mean, and in that same vein, to put, it, to, to, put it, to put it in another context, no, it's um, Spock, McCoy, and Bones. True. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. That power except, trio. Except, um, whereas in Star Trek, you have that a, a very decisive Captain Kirk making a decision. Here, it's like by necessity that this kind of meek individual, he's the only one that's going to get stuck with the responsibility of what happens right. with the shark, mm-hmm. right? right? Quint right. can sail off into the sunset and mm-hmm. Hooper can go back to his oceanography lab in mm-hmm. a mysterious island. Right. But he's the one who's going to get stuck with this. So he's the one that ends up uh, balancing them because he has the most to lose mm-hmm. out of out of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, again, that's what I was leading you to was the id, the ego, and the superego. There. Gotcha. So, You're from a psychological me. standpoint, that's what those characters can represent uh, in that film. And then, of course, you've just got raw beast animal power mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. at first, you just think is a dumb animal that mindless is killing a mindless killing machine, which then turns on them and becomes the aggressor, which... Becomes a very mindful killing machine. <laughs> it does, which then leads to the question of fight or flight, right? right. Mm-hmm. Do we stay here and shark. fight the mon- monster or do we <laughs> get the hell back to shore? Sharks and the salsa are shark. Yep. The, and I think that there's always going to be the expectation that if you try to, you know, if you try to break something down and you try to assign an ideological meaning to something, you're always going to be able to make your analogy work. But sure. as Rodrigo right. has pointed out, they all kind of break down in the end. And I think that what this movie represents to me more than anything is kind of the triumph of that 70s filmmaking style that, well, we're going to do it this way and we're going to fly in by the skin of our teeth. Well, and it's the auteur, the auteur theory. And we don't have a script and we don't have a cast and we don't necessarily have a shark that works. But by God, when we're done, we're going to have us a mutual classic that lasts for decades. So keep in mind that we're coming out of a time period where you did do things by the books. By the book, yeah. If this were a Hollywood picture done 10 years previous... All of this would have been filmed in a tank with miniatures right. Right. Uh, yep. on a back lot at, at uh, Universal. Mm-hmm. Here we get and into some of it was filmed in, in a yeah, back lot. Some of it was. was, but here we get to this. Island, uh, the, uh, here we group. get to this uh, idea that we can do things differently. We can go mm-hmm. on location mm-hmm. to film this stuff. We can make a mechanical shark, and let's by God, let's do it just because we can try to do it. And Spielberg and Lucas um, and. Um, um, Scorsese, uh, he's a little bit older, but in that same area. And then um, Coppola, Coppola yeah. was kind of, and, and, and oh, Lucas oh. and Lucas and Spielberg would tell stories of kind of like Coppola was the their godfather, their godfather yeah. and that he would tell them stories of here's how you have to do it. And of course, Coppola went out and founded his own studio and did all these things. So there's this energy that goes through young directors like Spielberg to go out there and say, yes, let us spend some time in the actual water and try to make this work. And then, of course, you know, the story goes, the shark <laughs> didn't work. Right. The, sure, sure. The, and then, you know, the other thing that maybe Spielberg learned from this is the movie went over budget, over production, shooting time. Mm-hmm. Was it was like three times as much shooting time as right. it was like regularly scheduled. Yeah, because, because of the shark, because of the mechanical nature of that shark and for a lot. I think a lot of, and some of it was also just shooting the Weather. ocean. Because yeah. they said like, like every single one of their in. boats sunk yeah, at yeah. one point and they had to send people down there to retrieve the orca. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
It's crazy. I mean, so there's something to be learned from from that. But yeah. I mean, you can get this raw energy, and there's a lot of that in this movie too, where you can, as Matthew said, it almost feels like it's unscripted. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. there's this raw energy, and there's a little bit of a enthusiasm in the film, especially when the trio go out onto the boat on the Orca, and they finally have harpooned uh, Bruce for the first time. Yeah. And you hear the, the John Williams song just playing. It's like, oh, yeah, this is fun. This is going to be exciting. We're going to bring the creature down. And then, oh. And then again, even when they're trying to escape and make the mad rush back to the island, you get this sense of we're on an adventure together and look how fun this is. Too bad one of us is going to die horribly. Yeah, I loved how the music would go uh, from the always recognizable theme to like, do, 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 do. And it's like montage. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna do yeah. cool things with a harpoon and fix yeah, up the even boat. Rocky had a montage. Yeah, there was. I, I think on the boat, there's like three super sweet montages of just them, like, like I mean, like buffing the boat, right? Like, yeah. Shining Play, their playing, harpoons, playing cards. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, does and, that work? Why? Are we- <laughs> uh, it was kind of, it was kind of strange. I thought honestly, because I mean. I think part of it builds up to, or kind of baits you in to uh. <laughs> the uh, horror, <laughs> the horror uh, of a man-eating shark that's going to eat your face right. pretty soon. Right. But also kind of takes you out of the suspense for a moment, and like, oh, everything's like, going like to be fine. Like a fish out of water. Like, literally, they're just going to kill this shark, and everything's going to be fine. But isn't that kind of what Spielberg wants you to do. Oh, I think He probably. wants you to think that everything's going to be fine, and then, ah, hey, I'm going to chew your face off. Hi, I'm Satan. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, intention- I mean, that's intentionally done, and I think the music is... Ex- I mean, we get that that theme, the Williams theme in there, mm-hmm. right from the beginning. We don't even have to see the shark. We see the... Right. We see Amity Harbor from the shark's point of view, and we hear that. So instantly, we're told by the audience, when you hear that theme song, crap's about to go yeah. down. And it is, I mean, just... The nature of those deep bass notes are unnerving. They mm-hmm. put you on edge. Because, I mean, you can walk up to a stranger who's like trying to count money and just go, <laughs> and she will punch you in the nards. Not that that's ever happened to me. But more importantly, <laughs> I think that that music is one of the major factors that makes the really, really fakey, bad artificial shark that didn't quite work right actually work the minimalist expectations the minimalist i guess visual part of it is picked up by that music and that audio cue and that yep we're Mm -hmm. we're intentionally making you uncomfortable and that i think is part of the reason that you know that the shark gets away with being in, in some of the sequences you have to admit you can look at that and go i can see where the shark is fake Right. That's not the, the point. Uh, going back to the music real quick, that the term that we're looking for that we're looking for there, Zach, is the light motif, the uh, idea that you're taking this little mm-hmm. bit of a song and you're applying it to a character, just like the Imperial March, the Darth right. Vader March that yeah. you hear in Star Wars and the it's Indiana the Latin Jones theme song. Light meaning shark and motif meaning <laughs> will bite your ass. Yes. Yeah. Uh I don't know which came first in the process of making the film. The chicken. The, <laughs> shut up. The, <laughs> the, the film filming or when John Williams started writing the score for this. Mm-hmm. But he's, and he talked about coming up with the shark theme, but just like starting low into the piano and working his way up. But, and cause he, in mind, he had the, he had the idea of the, mo- the light motif for the mm-hmm. shark. 
And I don't know if that came before the, all the issues with Bruce and then them not really being able to show him. And then it kind of just funneled into being able to use that more dramatically in the movie or what happened. Because I know in the filmumentary yes. of Jaws... Uh, documentary. No, no actually, it's, no. It's, it's actually a, a filmumentary. It's called a filmumentary. You said film documentary before, and I wanted to punch you right in the face. Um, and then I know because uh, Williams and Spielberg on talk on that about mm-hmm. how Williams played him the score for him the first time, and Spielberg thought it was like ludicrously stupid. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know when that happened, or if, like he already had the score done, and then they started writing the movie. I haven't figured that out because um, obviously that ended up slightly saving uh spielberg's uh but in the end slightly let me introduce Spielberg you style. to someone that you probably need to do a little bit more research on <sighs> more people yeah. no this is someone important mother cutter oh yeah okay yeah uh That's verna cool. fields is yeah. the uh editor right. on this and she and spielberg went back and forth a lot during the editing process mm-hmm. on how much of the shark should you show right and spielberg and he's said this in interviews because he spent so much time on the water with this shark and it working and it not working. And he, he really wanted to get every last shot, last shot, every frame possible that he could Mm -hmm. of that shark. And Verna Fields was constantly saying, no, you got to back that off. You got to back that off. You got to back that off because less is more in this case, not more is more. I mean, we see that we see one shot that lasts maybe three seconds, of the full length of that shark up against the boat, and you're like, that's a big shark. Yeah. Right? Big old shark. You don't have to see it circling the boat 15 times from above and, uh, to say that this is a big shark. You know from that one shot that it's a big shark. You don't even have to see the shark. We don't see the shark until it gets into the harbor. And even when it gets into the harbor, yeah, we see it bite into the man when he gets into the into the little uh, lake, the little lagoon, lake pond lagoon, the pond or whatever they call it. Um, we see its fins, mm-hmm. but we don't see it bite something until it's that man. We don't see the shark until we get out further into the water. Everything else is just this little glimpse of something that might be the girl at the beginning who's swimming in the water and is drugged by something or pulled down by something. What is it? Is it a, is it a tentacle monster? <laughs> is it boys having fun? No, it's a giant shark going to kill somebody. And that's what, gets, that's what gives you that scare. Mm-hmm. Same way when uh, Richard Dreyfuss is down below examining the hole in the hull. I think everything's fine. And then all of a sudden, in that one brief second, what do you see? A dead body. A dead body mm-hmm. comes in a frame. And oh! did you jump? Oh, yeah. Okay. Verna, Verna Fields understand, understood that, in this case, you have to be really, really selective of your edit. And the edit has to come at the right point not at the point that you want it but that point where you're going to elicit the greatest response from your audience so if that means trimming back on the shark then by god trim back on the shark mm-hmm. you know you i forget what um this is her last film she did is it really yeah um oh yeah she goes way back mm-hmm yeah, she goes back to like um, the 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I read that uh, Spielberg was kind of upset for how much notoriety she got for this film, for her work on it, and that he never worked with her again on the rest of the movies he did, uh, which he didn't, but I believe she only lived for about six more years. Hmm. Yeah, 10 minutes later, she was eaten by a shark. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's real. I mean, you maybe you should go back and look at some other things or yeah. see what interviews she has. I know that there's at least one interview where she's talking about mm-hmm. editing inside mm-hmm. the pool house. Right. Um, and it's it's fascinating to go and listen to her talk about her theory of editing. And I think the more you can get into people like Merch and get his idea of how editing works or you get into Verna Fields or whoever else, I think that's important to to see. Because as it, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that the director-editor relationship is one of the most powerful relationships on the entire production. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. even more so than the director-cinematographer or the director-actor relationship. Because really it's the director and the editor who are putting that story together. They're the ones that are putting the final, the end on the end right. of, of your film. And together they're crafting all of those bits and pieces that you've taken and putting it into a, into a cohesive story. Now, years ago in the early system, you know, you're an editor. You're just a, the equivalent of a seamstress. Right. You're just mm-hmm. someone back there putting pieces together. You don't Cutting know things you with a razor blade, mm-hmm. taping yeah, it together. Taping it together, move on. And then you had, uh, maybe your head of the editing department would come and examine stuff and tell you where you messed up or tell you to go back and fix things. And it's the head of the editing department that would then take it to the director if it even got that to that process and say, here we go, here's your film. Today, it's, it's not that way. So do you think um, it's surprising that more directors don't do the editing themselves, or do you think it's better to have that relationship of one person's a director, one well, person's an editor, and then the collab? Here's the problem with you doing it yourself. And I know Robert Rodriguez, you know, shot chopped and, you know, yeah. <laughs> written, directed everything by by him. Yeah, I don't know. I think Kevin Smith edits everything, too. Yeah. The the I nice thing is... Baby Dave does some of his editing. The, the nice thing is, from that is, if you have an idea and a perspective, you can ensure that your idea and perspective gets carried through. Right. But the problem is your idea and your perspective, while it may be good, can always be better with a second set of eyes, right? right? And so you sitting there with the director, with an editor, as a director, and saying, well, let's see what your take of this is, looking Mm -hmm. at that and analyzing and saying, oh, does that work better than what my vision is? Or let me look at it a different way, gives you that opportunity to see what works and what doesn't work. I mean, this film would have been totally different if Spielberg was cutting it himself. Yeah. Right? If it hadn't have been for that editor sitting there going, no, 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 Stephen, let's back this up. Let's but cut this it, off. It has to be a collaboration because there, I mean, there's a story that is at least vaguely notorious. And this is related to the Twilight Zone as nearly everything that I remember is. There's an episode called The Obsolete Man. It's one of the Burgess Meredith episodes. And it ends with this moment where uh, a character is surrounded by other characters and the characters are uh, and they're growling and their voices build and build and build and then they they fall upon him and tear him to pieces when the director put it together and went with the editor and said i want to do it like this i don't want them i don't want to see them move until the screen builds i want it to build up to here and then they move and the editor said no i'm not going to cut it that way and the director went, no, 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 we have to do it this way. The editor said, no, I'm not going to cut it that way. The director went to the, the production company, and the production company said, no, he's the, he's the editor. He cuts it however he wants. So, I mean, it's, it's got to be a balance. You can't have somebody go in, shoot all this film, and then have someone else completely override him. Right. Granted, right. It, it certainly works here, and I think it works to the, to the benefit of the film. But if you look at the end of The Obsolete Man – 
And you think, you know, I think at least the way it was described is actually better than the way it was put together, kind of a hasty compromise. So as with anything, yes, you have to have somebody who's able to look at it as as the process. The cut of the process is is kind of that that physical hands-on bit because, you know, your finished product is always going to be the death mask of your idea. Sometimes you have to compromise, but you don't necessarily want, you know, the power to be entirely in the hands of the cutter either. What were you going to say, Rodrigo? I mean, especially nowadays, you know, the director usually, well, the producer, the executive producer is going to have the final say for any given thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, nowadays, you know, it's the the director follows the whole process. You know, personally, I think some people have that vision and they want to do everything and that's fine. You know, Michael Jackson recorded all the voices for any Michael Jackson song, right? Sure. And and that sounded great. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you can go in and when you have six professionals that are at the top of their career doing something for you, right. when you can get the best director of photography, when mm-hmm. you can get, you know, a really good editor, when you can get, you know, the best spe- or a really good special effects house doing things for you, then you as a di- it leaves you as a director open to work with the actors, work on pre-production, mm-hmm. um, if you don't have to worry so much about what you're going to do in post-production. And then after all that's done, it also maybe adds three years to your life that sure. we're going to go away from <laughs> right. having to put exactly. to, to, to basically shoulder this entire project. That being said, as someone who's starting out, it might be to your advantage to shoot and edit everything yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, because yeah. on the one hand, you're going out onto a shoot and you've got, I don't know, you're shooting your 30-second commercial spot that you're doing here for the city. Right. Um, you can go out and say, okay, in my mind, I know I need this shot, this shot, this shot, and this shot. You can go out, you can shoot it, you can come back and it edits perfectly because you saw that in your head. Right. On the other hand, you can also get into that habit of, I know what I need. You can go out as your director and your director of cinematography and... Shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot, and then you can get back to the edit bay and go, ah, how could I have forgotten Mm -hmm. that shot? Or, oh, this is ruined. This isn't going to work because I didn't think of this. Right. And so then you'll have, I think, because you're doing all that yourself, a greater appreciation and understanding of what each department does and what each position does and why it's important to, say, hire a continuity person or Mm -hmm. a script manager or a you know, an editor Mm -hmm. uh, in your process so that you can say, ah, this is why I'm making a sound editor, sound editor, right? Professionals who focus on their aspect and make the whole finished product better. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, uh, I say do it all yourself right now. Learn to light and screw it up. First of all, you don't have any money. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Because how are you going to hire anybody? Yeah, exactly. Rodrigo and I are for hire if you need some. Yeah. I work cheap. That's true. He works for pizza. Uh, That's true. I have, a, I have about two freezer freezers full I work, of frozen I work, pizza. I work for a nonprofit, so you. <laughs> what else you, did you, you want to probably muster? What did you want else to touch on this week, Zach? Especially with Jaws, I know you had some oh, notes, which is good. Um, or questions that you had. Zach on film. Uh, He's got nothing. Well, let's just. No, I do. I'm just trying to let's what I want to talk about first. <laughs> um. I thought the cinematography was, was really good. <laughs> Next week, Rodrigo on film. <laughs> did you uh, Did you notice your uh, dolly zoom? I did, mm. and then I and then I had that moment of of uh, film 
nerd rage because I got on and I was reading stuff about it. And they're like, the Dolly, Dolly in Zoom Out, often referred to as the Jaws shot. I was like, <laughs> uh, no, I'm pretty yeah. sure this was done about 20 years before. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I liked, I mean, the low-level water stuff, underneath water stuff, obviously incredibly important to build suspense and still not have to show the shark because it's like, oh, you are the shark and you're about ready to eat someone. And it builds on that fear of, hey, I'm swimming in the ocean. I literally can't see my feet. I hope I don't die in the next 10 seconds. Oh, Hence the reason I don't go in the ocean above my head. Die. Okay. Um, did you want to talk about uh, the blockbuster? Oh, yeah. Movement? Why don't we go ahead and uh, do a, a shout out to the okay. people that made this show possible? All right, let's shout out to people who support us. Bah. This show goes out to <laughs> Tyler Gibson, Richard Carcrasilis. Nice, Matthew. <laughs> Matthew Goins, Douglas Hopkins, Kent Dua, Dau, mm. Daring <laughs> Heinison, Casey Box, Derek Chin, Nicole Gross. Uh, that really sucks to have that last name. I'm sorry. Adam Mickelson and Matt. Verlinden. You know, she's heard that for her entire yeah, I'm sure, I know, I'm, I'm sure, sure she I'm has. Sure she's never heard that. Before. Yeah, I know, but it just, I just had to say it, and, and I just get... Going up to you and going, no, Actually, no one, no one really does that. Shut up. <laughs> uh, thank you for supporting us, arr, arr, making arr. all these shows possible. You are awesome, each and every one of you, even more so when I pronounce your name wrong. And uh, if you would like to get your name mispronounced wrong, or if you'd like to help out this show in any way, <laughs> maybe send Zach to the wrong, library. Pronounced right? Nah, well, maybe it's so. not quite a double negative. No, no, no. Okay. It's just Zach is bad even at mispronouncing things. Yes. Oh, really call. bad at reading. $10 a month gets your name shouted out of the part of the show, gets you recognized as someone who helps make Zach on film possible. And again, we thank each and every one of you. If you can find out more about becoming a regular subscriber or regular donor over at Majorspoilers.com. Blockbusters. All right. 1975, there was no such thing as a blockbuster. Not yet. And then Jaws came out. And then it made a piss ton of money. <laughs> it did. Hey, hey, hey. We don't talk like that here. <laughs> Why? We do not use those words. Why, what were some of the factors that led to this being a blockbuster? Um, am I speculating? Because I honestly sure. don't really know. Uh, probably a lot of media hype. About it going over budget and like leaked pictures of giant sharks. Um, best selling novel. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the best selling novel is part of that. Uh, people being scared of sharks. Uh, advertisement. I heard, I read yeah, they, they dumped a lot of money into marketing this movie. Well, when you see the poster, here's this uh, half naked girl swimming at the top, and you just see this giant thing coming mm-hmm. up from below. I remember seeing that. I mean, out of the grocery store or something. I remember yeah. as a kid and just going, "Oh my god, that just looks terrifying." You have to, you have to remember that had this not had like, if this had had like a traditional um, marketing campaign at the time, it would have been like caricature pictures of uh, the three guys on a boat that is too small for them yeah. <laughs> with the, and it would just say like Jaws and like beige letters above them. Right. It would now, all be now granted, blo- blockbuster is not a, not a term that was just invented, but no, the it fact that... dates back to the war. Yeah, it goes, it goes way, way, way back. Um, but the fact that this movie came out, had some hype behind it, 
the fact that it was during the summer, it was very hot and movie theaters had air conditioning. Right. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people got a thrill out of being scared of this and they went back again and again and again and again. And it led to making so much money that this idea of the summer blockbuster came about. Mm -hmm. And because of the success of Jaws, this is the this is that point where here's why we are now speculating today on. Based on when this movie releases, we have a summer movie release schedule that starts late April mm-hmm. and extends all the way until September 3rd, yeah. basically, yeah. Labor Day. Well, that is your summer season. And if you're a big Hollywood studio, you're going to want to get your biggest, most expensive movie scheduled in one of those few weekends. You're really looking at about 10 weekends. Yeah. You want to get your movie scheduled in one of those 10 weekends because that summer blockbuster is going to make money for the entire studio so that then the studio can turn around and dole out that profit or that gross to smaller films. Right. And that's why we call these summer blockbusters often tentpole films because you're basing all of the production that you're going to be doing for the rest of the year on the success of this one movie. They basically created a system that only works if the blockbusters sell. Well – if the blockbuster sells, and so that's why when we look at Man of Steel or Iron Man 3 or um, Lone Ranger or whatever, mm-hmm. these studios really compete with one another to say, when is the best time for us to position this film? If Man of Steel waited two weeks to come out, it would have been competing. Well, if they waited a week to come out, they'd be competing with a Disney animated feature that was a sequel to something that was already beloved and would have attracted a large audience. If they right. would have waited two weeks from the release, they would have been competing with um, Pacific Rim and um, – um, no, not Pacific Rim, uh, Lone Ranger. Right. And then mm-hmm. you've got Pacific Rim. You've got all these others. Every studio has staked a claim on mm-hmm. specific weekends, and mm-hmm. that's why we see announcements today of studios like Disney saying, hey, we've got a Marvel movie. We're not going to tell you what the title of it is. We've got a Marvel movie coming out on these four dates in 2015 and these six dates in 2017. We don't know what they are, but they're coming out. Yep. But they're staking that claim right. on this is the weekend that we that we want to generate the largest amount of money. And certainly we have seen the growth of the summer blockbuster increase with Jurassic Park, another Steven Spielberg movie. We saw that jump again with Independence Day. We saw that happen again. Double check. I'm pretty sure Titanic was a summer release. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that was a summer blockbuster release. Mm-hmm. And then we saw it again just recently with Avatar. These things just continue to build, and the studios are hoping, and, and again with uh, Avengers making over a billion dollars, that the studios are just latching on, hoping that that one weekend, that 10% chance that they have in that schedule will lead December. them to be – it was actually oh, it was a, a December release. release. Okay. That it it's Christmas. going to be a huge um, event for them. Something else that, that Jaws did, and this may not be, you know, a, the much of a game changer as my childish mind remembers it. Because remember, I'm five or six when this movie came out. This game merchandised to the point where I actually had a board game where you would take a little hook and you would pull human skulls and bones and crap out of Jaws and the mm-hmm. rubber bands would make his face snap shut and yeah, kill yeah. you. When – and I had never seen that before. You know, I'd never seen that level of it was everywhere. You, you would, you were, we were kids playing this game and they're dragging a human skull out of the stomach of a plastic shark. It was in the grocery stores. The book was everywhere. The movie posters were, uh, I, I remember the movie posters being in town 
And I did not grow up in a city. I grew up in a you know a, a dirt farm outside of Smallville. Me yeah. and Mon Pa. Well, like Kent, I said, I, I I didn't go see the movie. I know my parents did, and I know my mom. I remember her over hearing her tell her one of her sisters, one of my aunts, about it and how terrifying it was. And mm-hmm. you know, oh, I don't want to go into the water. And it's mm-hmm. you know that was the tag of the film. You'll be afraid to go in the water. Or you won't go into the water after you see Jaws. And um, it was uh-huh. a spectacle. I, there are some reports coming out of New York where people are literally lined up around the block to see this film, waiting in the heat to see this movie. $100 million, I think, is what that's, it made. I think it made. And in 1975 made? money, that's like $11 gazillion. Yeah, $100 million in 1975. Now, granted, um, Gone with the Wind and I want to say Sound of Music. Yeah, both of those films had surpassed that amount. If you appreciate and depreciate the uh, dollars, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, in absolute dollars. But when we talk about building up to this huge thing that you're basically basing your entire studio on, um, this it starts with Jaws. Mm-hmm. Now, an interesting thing is recently, within the last couple of weeks of the recording of this particular episode. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, George Lucas, of course, Star Wars, who two years later uh, would, you know, blow out the summer blockbuster with with uh, Star Wars mm-hmm. movies. They sat down at UCLA or USC, USC, USC film school, and they were having a discussion. And Steven Spielberg basically came out and said the movie studio system is about to implode upon itself mm-hmm. because they keep. Banking their dollars on these bigger and bigger, bigger budget features and expecting them to stay into the theaters longer. And then smaller budget production movies can't get made or they can't get time enough in the theaters for them to be seen. Right. Somewhat ironic. Because <laughs> well, Spielberg is talking about Lincoln and how it wasn't in the theaters for very long and didn't have mm-hmm. a, a huge number of screens. Mm-hmm. Is your fault, you know? You <laughs> well, did this yeah. to yourself, right? This is the yeah. house that you guys built, and and Lucas the same way. Which you know, to, and and to a certain degree, it's it's good that they're recognizing that's true. That I mean, right. they it could just be that they're like, oh, everybody's gonna throw it in our faces. So let's not say anything. And to a certain degree, it's also that um, they're wanting to make smaller films right. themselves. Mm-hmm. You right. know, um, Lucas was behind Red Tails, Red Tails right. which I thought was a great movie, but got. Very little play, and I don't think it's I don't think it's con- considered it a financial success at all. Didn't play oh, here. Um, it didn't play here in Hayes. I it did. It, oh, did I? Think I, yeah, I think it did. Russell. Oh, did it? Yeah, I think a couple weeks. You know, today if if a movie is not doing well, it can get yanked the week after. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. In the historical perspective, and Matthew's always like, "Well, Stephen, you can't tell how much movie <laughs> how much money a movie's going to make." In historical perspective, a movie, and this would have been 1980s onward. A movie would have about a 10-week run in the theater, and then it would have, basically, after it was in the theatrical release, it would do three months on, like, airlines, pay-per-view, hotels. and hotels, yeah. and then uh, then it would uh, go out to your video release six to 12 months later. Mm-hmm. And then it would shuffle down to your cable channels, your HBOs, your Showtimes, and then down to your ABC TV movie of the week. Um, and in that 10 week period that it was in the theaters, the formula was you expect the film to drop 20% per week that it was in the theater. So if it opened at a hundred dollars, the next week you would expect it to make $80. And then the week after that, you would expect it to make this much money and so on. You Mm -hmm. could do the math. 20% of 80 is blah, 
Uh, and then you could add it up and you could figure out how much money that movie would make. Um, today, you really can't do this. And this, I think, was Jurassic Park 3, 2 or 3. Must have been 2. Uh, that movie dropped like 50% the week after it opened up. Prehistoric oh, Boogaloo. Wow. Yeah. And people were like, oh, we have to totally reevaluate how we calculate how much money a movie is going to make. And so now, this happens a lot. Um, typically, it's anywhere from 40 to 50% of a drop from week to week. And the more movies that are being put out, the larger the potential margin of dropping is. So what happens is studios are now pushing all of their marketing and all of their hype for that first week release. Right. Because if we can make $200 million in the first week, even if it drops in half the second week, we've made $300 million. And then half again the second week, there's, you know, uh, $350 million. And so, you know, right. they're putting all of that up front and they're forgetting that that movie should be in the theater for several weeks afterwards. There was a time, and I remember, gosh, it had to have been in the 70s, seeing an MGM promo for all of the movies that were coming out in the year. And it was basically the 12 months of MGM Lion. And it was like, here are the movies coming out in January. See Francis Ford Coppola's blah. And then it would just tell you what movies were coming out in the next year. And so you could kind of plan for that and know that those movies were going to be in the theaters for two or three months. And you could go see it sometime in those two or three months. I think in that interview at USC, Spielberg said that E.T. was in the month in theaters for a year and four months. Yes. And some movies have done that. And Spielberg, in that same interview, in that same article, goes on to say that as the studio systems implode, we're going to see a change in how the traditional movies mm -hmm. are distributed to maximize those dollars. Right. The first thing that he said was going to happen was movies are only going to only the good movies or the ones that they expect to make a, a lot of money. These tentpole films are going to be in theaters for at least a year. Right. You're not going to see a four week run. You're going to see them in theaters for a year and they will be events to go to very much like seeing a Broadway musical. And mm -hmm. you're going to be expected to pay $50 to go to the movies. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, to the big that's ones. just for the to ticket. The, the, yeah. yeah. To, to the, the big blockbusters. Right. And that's just for that ticket, not the popcorn right. and all the other stuff. So he's equating that change to almost something that, was happening 20 years ago without the, or mm -hmm. I'm sorry, 40 years ago without the, um, without the huge cost. Right. Which I find fascinating. Yeah. I think, and in that same, uh, quote he talks about when he talks about the movie ticket being $50 to go see mm -hmm. like Iron Man three or something. Right. He also says that he believes, uh, smaller budget of movies tickets will be like regular price with the other like seven bucks, which I think right. would be very interesting to see, uh, movie price tickets fluctuate, Based on what the movie's essentially budget was. Well, and I can I can see that happening. But it I've just, also it just be a, it would be a huge change. Be like, oh, I'm going to go see wow. uh, Drive. The ticket's going to be seven dollars. Oh, I want to go see Avengers. Oh, it's going to cost me like forty five. Right. It's going to be. It'd be a but big difference. again, from what Spielberg is saying, you can go see a no name off Broadway production, right. And pay twenty five bucks. Right. You want to go see The Lion King? You're going to pay two hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. For a, a crappy ticket or Oz or um, Wicked or whatever. Mm -hmm. yeah. You're going to be paying a, out the nose for those productions. I don't know if, I mean, Rodrigo and Matthew jump in, I don't know if audiences would put up with that. Uh, I, I certainly would. wouldn't. No. I mean, I, don't, I can't I, afford that. I, I think I, they will. And the reason that I think they will is because we are at a point where the movie studios pretty much 
just make this up off the top of their head and say, this is how it goes, and this is what you're going to do if you want to see the movie. Here's the thing. If you've got 40% of the people who are willing to pay 10 times as much for a ticket to go see your Avengers, your Batman, your giant freakish movies, you're still making your money. Yeah, if you can get them to pay that amount, if they're willing to do it. Again, remember who's filling up the theater right now. Kids who are trying to get out of the heat and stay mm-hmm. away from their parents and right. make out or do whatever kids do at movie theaters. And I, I think a, a large difference or problem with his idea of one movie's being $50 or one being $7 is that when you're buying a ticket to go see like Book of Mormon, uh, I try to get Book of Mormon tickets for us to go see it in Denver and they sold out and now they're all like $400 or $1,200 right, you can take right. it. The thing is that that... It's because that is the only place I can go watch Book of Mormon. Right. I can go to almost any theater right. and watch Man of Steel right now. And so why should well, that cost a lot more money when that's the only... I, I think so that's, if, that's you're not, sh- well, if you're shipping if, moving if around... He thinks, if he thinks that everything has to be that experience, then if going to see the Avengers is going to be a $50 experience, then it can't come to haze. No, you know, right you're now. gonna have you're gonna have to go to yeah. Kansas City to see the Avengers. Right, it's gonna have to, have to be in to like Salina. like five theaters at one time for people mm-hmm. to start paying. Well, the other thing you have to keep in mind too, and I and I need to go back and reread it because I kind of glanced over it a couple weeks ago when it first broke and people were talking about it. But there was a time when going to the theater was the experience. Right, right. right. You would go to the movies to see the spectacle and the lavishness yeah. that was the theater. And the theaters were gorgeously apportioned. The 1920s, beautiful. you know, rise of, of the theater is just a fantastic period to go and look. Uh, the Fox Theater in Atlanta, one of my, my, when I lived there, I'd go down there all the time. They renovated it, and that's where they do a lot of other venues. But during the summer, and I know some of our listeners live in Atlanta now, during the summer, the Fox Theater has their movie series. And they will pull movies from the 1930s all the way to modern stuff. And they'll play it, and you go in, and it's just like the theater experience that you had in the movie Palace days. If you're going to pay $50 for a ticket, I better be going to some place where cell phones are off, yeah. people are not you know, chatty-chatting, and the theater better be spectacular. So you're right. We're probably not going to get a movie Palace built in Hayes. No. We will have to go. I think the Glen was it the Glenview? What was the one up on 95th and Metcalf in Kansas City was, uh, was a beautiful theater. I had a big crystal chandelier in the, in the mm-hmm. lobby i love the fox theater in uh salina that was actually still so, still uh showing movies when i was in high school yeah the fox the, uh downtown here used to be part of that it wasn't necessarily the big the big movie it's pretty palace nice that though. we know yeah. but they, it, was it got, nice. it got renovated for and and was open for about 10 seconds yeah, yeah. the orpheum recently. in wichita yeah is beautiful and and you can find these movie palaces still exist they're few and far between the mm-hmm. egyptian and, and all of these um but i the, would expect that if you're going to be talking about 50 dollars tickets that that's the kind that's of experience you're going to go to yeah. i think and i and i haven't read this article but you i really think should. i I'll can put a link that. to it I, in the show notes yeah i, have I think link, yeah. the issue here is you know, he's saying this is what's going to have to happen in order for things to not necessarily disintegrate. Mm-hmm. But what if it doesn't? Did did he did he speak at length about 
piracy and things like that. I don't think he talked because, about piracy. Not, not piracy. Because when, when you can't download Game of Thrones and it costs you 50 bucks an episode to do it and you have to have a cable subscription for it, mm-hmm. then people are going to start going to the pirate style base. In- interestingly, uh, there was just a study done <laughs> almost on the heels of that or right before that that uh, basically proved that pirates, they're, you're not losing money to piracy. Right. Because the pirates are paying for that stuff and people who pirate it will go back out later and buy that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than what the movie theaters think that they're that they're stealing. I think what Spielberg and Lucas were getting to towards the end of the interview was the movie studio system as we know it today is going to implode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going to go see a $250 million movie, you're going to go see it and pay 50 bucks for it. Or you can go to another outlet and watch my Steven Spielberg small budget movie and be entertained mm-hmm. and not have to pay 50 bucks. They talked a lot about um, digit, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. digital uh, push of media from. I mean, they talked. I talked a lot about television. They think television is actually a place that tells uh, stories that are more daring and uh, creative than a mm-hmm. lot of uh, big movies are. And they and I think they. I I feel like from that interview, they especially uh, Lucas really believes in like the digital push of uh, of low budget movies. And he said the only really problem is marketing. And once they figure that out, look. Then, I mean, <laughs> this is this is what I've been saying for years yeah. now. Yeah. Give me a box that I can put in my theater system or hook up to my TV screen, and I want to sit down and or I want a computer monitor, or giant computer yeah. monitor, and I'm going to watch a movie. Mm-hmm. And again, not to be, don't call me an Apple fanatic because people know that it's that's not the case. But I can sit down with my Apple TV <laughs> and mm-hmm. I can say, I can go to the category that says. In theaters now, and granted, it's not Iron Man 3, it's right. not whatever, but it may be um, the history of future folk, or it may be um, upstream color, yeah. or it may be whatever, or I can get these releases before they come out on traditional DVD. Right. There's a what whole if, category there. Yeah, I don't Whether that be on uh, Netflix or Roku or Hulu Plus or iTunes or whatever, give me that bucks and give me that option and you can have a whole channel when you turn on your, your mm-hmm. Apple TV that says, just run trailers. Just have your iTunes box boot up. That's what they have on the, on the, uh, on the Apple TV. they got a whole category called trailers. Mm-hmm. If but, I, I mean, can watch X- that stuff and decide I want to watch uh, it or not. And like Xbox Live. Xbox When you pull up your, your, the thing, there's like a trailer running yeah. just yeah. without volume and sometimes with volume. You know, and it uh, freaks me out. That is it's like, Will Smith is here, you guys. <laughs> that is what... If you're going to market, as more people have these gaming stations and standalone media devices and, and digital devices in their home, this is the perfect way to get that mm-hmm. distribution. Because some kid's going to sit down and say, you know what, I'm not going to pay $7.99 or 12 bucks or whatever to go to my local theater, but here this movie's $4.99 and I can rent it and my friends and I yeah. can laugh and throw popcorn at the screen at home and run around in our underwear or do whatever the kids do. That is an easy wanna, purchase. That's the equivalent of a, your movies. That's the equivalent of a ninety nine cent purchase right. from the yeah. app store. Mm-hmm. But what it's is a no brainer? What, what about this World War Z thing where you pay fifty bucks and you get a ticket and the limited edition poster and a, a download of the film when it becomes available? Yeah. I mean, there's there's additional content if you're going to pay that. If yeah. that, yeah, right. if that's Built included in that. 
surprise if so, it's built into that, and we don't know that it's going to be built into that. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be the Wild West there for that's a while. What Paramount oh, yeah. is doing. You know, that's that's what they've offered with World War Z. Yeah, and you can on iTunes right now. You can. I haven't looked at it. It's just like one of those big things on top. Or Despicable yeah. Me too. You can like pre-order a ticket, yeah. and you're gonna get like a pissed ton of crap mm-hmm. when. It- <laughs> Will you stop? With that? <laughs> no, he's I won't. been drinking a lot of water tonight. We do uh, not yeah, on this really show, bad. you little ass clown. Uh, <laughs> and you, I mean, it's like you can buy it now. Yeah. It's well, essentially, you can buy Despicable Me now. And, and, and where it. does where does this idea come from? Well, it comes from a lot of different places. You know, you go to the theater on this day, you get a little poster that's been going on for forever, yeah. but. Look at Kickstarter and look at Indiegogo, where, hey, man, fund my movie and you'll get this. You'll mm-hmm. get this. You'll get this. You'll get this. And I funded a number of projects in that way because, number one, I believe in the project and I want to see it happen. Right. But number two, there's some cool stuff. You know, I get this swag it, that comes you know, with it. Sure, in, a, it in a sense, and people the, will buy that the stuff. studio system is getting it from all angles right now. Oh, yeah. People oh, yeah. aren't going to the movies as much. And also people are saying, oh, I don't go to the movies as much because the movies that are playing are not the kind of movies I like. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to pay one through a thousand dollars to get the movie that I want done. And here's mm-hmm. the cool thing. Me paying one to a thousand dollars or more. Oftentimes, once you hit that twenty five dollar mark. Mm-hmm. When that movie is released, I get, something I get the digital download. Yeah, right so yeah. I don't have to go to the theater to see it. It's going to come to my, you know, there's going to be a link sent to me that says here, get this, right, mm-hmm. and I can get that. So I think that, and I'm not going to put words into their mouth, but I think that's what Spielberg and Lucas are getting to is we're going to see more smaller films funded and distributed, not through the studio system as yep. we have a distribution model now. Mm-hmm. We're going to see more, and I think isn't Spielberg involved with some Xbox One. Um, some sort of streaming, not sure. some streaming show with Dogs of oh, War or something. Yes, Rob. Spielberg is uh, producer on <laughs> the Halo. Oh, Halo live action show that they're going to be doing, and isn't it's that distributed through Halo your Xbox One? Uh, I'm going to assume probably, but I don't. So know. he's already setting you up, telling you this is the future of the way it is, and that's great okay. to be this great pro- prognosticator. Yet another Except self-fulfilling prophecy for a couple from of years. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is why I don't go to the movies. Yeah, I'm sure. No, I love, um, I love going to the, the movies. Are uncomfortable. Um. So how does this all relate back to Jaws? Well, like we said, <laughs> this is where the blockbuster started. Yeah, it's happened. Jaws's fault. It is Jaws's fault. Yeah, really. He took a big Jaws. bite out of audiences, and they've never looked back. You really can't can't begrudge the, the uh, their movie, success. I mean, the movie it, theaters it is, threw I it can't. out there and reeled the audiences in. It, it was just like they just threw chum. Yeah, like, they, the it was like a feeding frenzy of people offering them money. Uh, speaking of being mad, also at success, Finn joke. There's a YouTube video of a home video of Spielberg watching the Oscar nominations for Jaws, mm-hmm. and he's talking about how is it going to get 11 nominations, and it ended up getting like four. Mm-hmm. And he just goes, he, I mean, he's like super pissed, and he's just talking about how they all hate his movie because how much money it made. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's that. Uh, Jaws is a scary movie and was a scary movie back then, but not just because it's it's a horror movie that is effective. It cracked things open yeah. for them. They, here's this guy that, you know, had done a few projects here and there, but he didn't come from the Hollywood machine. Right, right. The, he was an outsider. 
um, he had like this film theory idea that was different from the system. He was like, let's go out, let's do th- let's do things differently, let's take these giant risks, and it totally paid off. Yeah, and- it sent them scrambling to do more things like Jaws. And yep. the reason he was doing things so differently is because he came from the television system. He started out working television. He did uh, uh, Night Gallery, like an episode yep. of Night Gallery. And, duel. Yeah, and then he did the, the duel, the, the movie duel. But, you know, he comes at it from a different, different idea of what, what it means to make movies. When you look at Jaws, um, it doesn't, like to me when I look at it, it doesn't look like, quote unquote, a movie from the 70s. No. Because after Jaws, all movies look like Jaws. <laughs> You know, that shot, like, that, um, like, your, uh, that shot of, like, the three people mm-hmm. in that little triangle mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on the boat, like, you didn't necessarily see that all that often, you know? Right. Everything was a lot flatter mm-hmm. before that were just, like, these big set pieces. I mean, obviously, you know, oh, you, no, you no. had some, some... There is a lot of depth in that, because yeah. here you're focused on Roy casting Chum into the water... Mm-hmm. And you're not really paying attention. You know, he's looking up and yelling at somebody about kissing that, his ass. And then all of a sudden, that is, my, that, that is my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah. Like, he's not paying attention. He's doing that. Shark comes out and his reaction, like he doesn't scream or yell or anything. It's just that, like, perfectly stiff, like, yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. Because, mm-hmm. like, that's, 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 what, that's what I did yeah. Yeah, yeah. when I saw it the first time. I mean, that that is just fantastic. And there's afterwards everybody was everybody just started adopting all of these techniques and the thing about jaws is that it's razzle mm-hmm. and dazzle yeah it is and that is all it is and that Shock is what movies awe. are today yeah. i mean it's just how spectacular and crazy and over the top can we make everything and things have really just escalated to the point where i see trailers for pacific rim and it's like yeah it's like Oh, awesome. A movie about giant robots and giant monsters. But it's difficult to see anything that I didn't see in Transformers right, or, right. I don't know, an episode of Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> What's So is that the scariest moment for you in Jaws? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because it's so, unlike almost everything else, it's so unexpected. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of scary stuff in Jaws. But uh, I think that one, because almost everything else, like, it's like... A lot of the other scenes build up to that mm-hmm. scary moment, right? Mm-hmm. Do dun do dun do dun do dun, and then something horrifying happens, and yeah, it's like super tense and very scary. That one comes out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. you're gonna need a bigger boat. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think for me, the scariest moment or one of the most terrifying moments of the movie isn't anything having to do with the shark, right? Mm-hmm. It is this part where. The three of them are sharing battle stories inside the ship, uh, yes. and um, and Hooper's like, "Oh, look at this cut that I got," or "Oh, look at this bite mm-hmm. that I got," or and Quint is like, "Ah, I lost my tooth," and "Oh, I got this," and then "Ah, what happened there?" Oh, I had the scar. I had the tattoo removed. Oh, what was it? A dancing lady? No, I was on the USS Illinois. And then he proceeds to tell you the story of about a thousand men going into the water yeah. and yes. being devoured by sharks. And in that moment, you're like. This is uh, why he hates sharks uh-huh. and is a shark hunter because he's lost his friends. And the movie goes from this very happy, jovial, ha-ha, camaraderie, ha mm-hmm. right. to this very yeah. somber, terrifying moment. And then the shark attacks. Right, right. And then it's just like that that sequence right there where they're swapping their war stories, mm-hmm. lack of a better word, uh, is just terrifying because it's like, 
thousand men went into the water. They pulled 300 of us out. And seven came out. Yeah. Now, is that is that not a true story? I, part don't, of that? I uh, don't know. I didn't look it up. Yes, it is mostly it, a true it, story. And then it, I think... It has historical yeah, basis. Yeah, and then Shaw actually wrote that his dialogue there. Yeah. And I think yeah. he kind of expounded on it just slightly. And, and as I understand it, there's a fair amount of either ad-libbing or improvised dialogue in mm-hmm. Jaws. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. I believe I, somebody out. somebody told me, and I, this could be wrong, that the line, we're going to need a bigger boat, is actually... Oh, improvised. Yeah, improvised. Yeah. That's a great line. Yeah. 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 Um that that scene when they're comparing scars when I watched that the first time uh all I could think of was the uh bar scene in Chasing Amy which is actually that is a direct jaws reference. Is it? Because it was yeah, wonderful. Kevin I was like, "Oh, this is so awesome." Jaws references. So cool. Yeah. That is exactly what that is supposed <laughs> that in Chasing Amy, that's what that is supposed to evoke. Totally made me smile. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um Oh yeah, people people have referenced um, Jaws for forever uh, Heck, since this. Um, I just happened to uh, to recently have uh, watched the uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, which came out the same year as Jaws, mm-hmm. and their tagline is "A different set of Jaws." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, if I'm not mistaken, whose production studios? Uh, Bad Hat Harry. Is that Brian Singer? Uh, oh, I think so. That? Yeah, that line is from Jaws. Jaws, right? That's some bad hat, Harry. Oh, yeah, right. and it, and the logo is actually yeah that thin, scene, and there's a shark in the background. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what? Who, yeah, I remember isn't it from, a, from House, a TV show. So I think it, yeah, it's yeah. Hugh Laurie's yeah, uh, production company. Oh, oh, that's what yeah, it it's is. at the end of uh, House. Yeah, that's where I it's, remember. It's always it's, it's always yeah. it's always hard to remember those because then you're trying to remember the yeah, theme that goes Brian before Singer. it. Yeah, it's yeah, like, that's Brian Singer's company. Mm-hmm. I always get it confused with Bad Robot. Right, yeah, it's always so funny Abrams. when I see that. I'm always like, ah, that. Oh, well, that makes sense. Sure, mm-hmm. Grr. Yeah, yeah, Arr. Arr. yeah. That because right. I had no idea Arr. where that Arr. line was from, and then I saw it. I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. So, um. Zach, what you get? What did you take away from this film? Um, I took away uh, the idea of not being uh, like stone cold set on your script when you mm-hmm. go into shooting, mm-hmm. and being able to ebb and flow around that depending on what uh, crazy problems you have or what uh, direction your actors might give as they start to develop their character while acting. Mm-hmm. And because it, it, it seems uh, through my, 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 my reading and listening that a lot of Jaws changed from the beginning of when they started production until the end. And it turned out uh, pretty good. So I think being able to be versatile enough to change things uh, out, of ne- out of necessity or out of creative betterment while on production is good? I would say, yeah. I would also say make sure that you're, uh, you plan for the worst, and you better <laughs> be able to charm your way, because I guarantee you some production that goes three months over, oh, well, over yeah. schedule That's, would have I mean, been yanked the week after it went over schedule. Yeah. So, yeah, be That's charming. That's kind of nuts. Be charming, Zach. What else? Editing, obviously, a uh, big point. Shot selection. 
and using that to direct the audience's emotions and just views in general on the film with a lot of the uh, in the water shots uh, sea level shots underwater shots to build suspense your, was good did your girlfriend yeah. watch it with you she did actually what'd she think she enjoyed it in, in fact um, in I fact, asked she it. said afterwards let's go swimming <laughs> no she actually <laughs> fell asleep for about the last 15 minutes Oh, that's the best 15 minutes I, of the movie. I feel they're in Smile, what happened. Smile, you son of a... Yeah. <laughs> um, I asked her if she'd watch it again, and she said, I'd watch the last 15 minutes that I missed, but mm-hmm. that's that's it. She doesn't... I As as I keep watching this mo- these... Um, uh, I quote, quote, older movies, because mm-hmm. this isn't that really old a movie. Uh, she doesn't like them, because I think just because they're old, because... Yeah, they look like, weird. Yeah, and I was like... Cause we're about ready. To, I was about ready to start playing it, and I was like, "Okay, we got to get settled." So when we were, when we hit play, we're like ready to go. She's like, "Well, what if there's credits at the beginning?" I was like, "Well, those are those are important. Like the credits are important. Like no, they're just they're just the people's names in the movie." I'm like, "Well, sometimes, but sometimes it's like really important instead of the like the whole aspect of the movie and everything." Right. So we have to be ready to watch this movie when I hit play. She's like, "Oh, okay. They're just stupid credits." I'm like, no, they're not. They're not stupid. Hey, Zach. What? What's a shark's favorite programming language? Java. Java. <laughs> What's the shark's favorite movie? Uh, Deep Blue Sea. The Shaw Shark Redemption. <laughs> oh, I was like, What's the shark's favorite sandwich? Uh, tuna. Peanut butter and jellyfish. <laughs> Why did the mommy shark and the daddy shark get divorced? Dead. Because uh, they didn't love differences. each other anymore. <laughs> oh. uh, All right. Rodrigo. <laughs> Rodrigo, how'd Zach do this week? <laughs> I'm pausing for laughter. Yeah. I mean, the joke wasn't mine, but... Uh, I think he did well. Um, I think uh, in this case, I'm probably going to pass Zach and put the rest of us on warning, because I th- I honestly think the studio system discussion went a little long. Eh, um, it was planned at this one anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he did well. I think he went in looking at it with a critical eye, um, and didn't get bogged down on, you know, war stories from outside of the movie. So I think he did well in this one. Matthew? Hey, 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 Zach. Yes, Matthew. What do you call a shark who wants to be by himself? A lone shark. A lone shark. All right. Uh, and Zach, I say that you pass as well. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, good job. You're starting to, I think, read more and more and more into, uh, into the, to these movies and really starting to look at them with a critical eye. Yay. So next week, next time on the waterfront. Uh, I, you really I that get one? it. <laughs> hey, no. Do you? Where does do the you shark really? keep his gym shorts? I don't know. Anyways, this is the no, end of Zach on film this week. Make sure to head over to majorspoilers.com. And make all of your comments and thoughts on Jaws in the podcast posting on that site. And while you're there on the main page, click on the Amazon.com link and go buy yourself a copy of Jaws or a big, big old TV. So that when the Jaws jumps out of the water, you scare yourself even more than you normally would on a smaller TV. <laughs> and a little bit of uh, that money will come, back <laughs> will come back to our site. It won't cost you any extra but a little bit will come back to us and keep all of this fantastic 
uh, podcasting entertainment Sharp. coming to your device week after week, day after day. Why and that's all uh, for Zach on Film this week. Next week on the waterfront, more water on Zach on Film. Yeah.